Hi, this is Christy Sadramelli. I'm a pediatric pulmonologist at Johns Hopkins. I'm here today um, with a jointly sponsored podcast between the Pediatric uh-huh. Assembly and also the Environmental, Occupational, and Population Health Assemblies of ATS. Um, I think this is going to be a really interesting podcast. Uh, we have with us two other doctors today. Uh, first, I'll introduce Ann Hicks. She's an assistant professor at the University of Alberta in Canada. She trained in environmental and molecular microbiology and then pediatric respirology or pulmonology for our um, <laughs> U.S. colleagues. And she works mainly in respirology, and she also works in a children's environmental health clinic in Edmonton. Dr. Hicks's research focuses on um, the role of asthma and inflammation associated with environmental exposures, and currently her group is looking at, um, jointly with some others, the effects of post-forest fire exposures and ash exposures, very relevant to what's been going on recently. And then we have with us Dr. Howard Kippen. He's a professor at the Rutgers School of Public Health. Um, His background is in internal medicine and occupational medicine. He's the associate director and professor-in-chief of the clinical research and occupational medicine um, division at the EOHSI, which is Environmental and Occupational Health Sciences Institute at Rutgers. Uh, His main research interest is in the health effects of indoor and outdoor air pollution. And I should mention that he is the chair of the Environmental, Occupational, and Population Health Assembly for ATS. So thanks for being with us today, guys. Um, And what we're going to do today is Anne's going to present a case of a patient that was seen in the environmental clinic, and then we're going to kind of think through um, the evidence for potential environmental exposures that may have contributed to this case presentation. This is not by any means going to be an open and shut case, um, such as this caused that for sure, but I think it raises a lot of really interesting um, themes and things we can think about for other similar case presentations, and we'll go a little bit through some of the evidence um, in the literature on these topic areas. So, Anne, if you don't mind first just telling us a little bit about your environmental clinic, that would be great. Sure. Thank you very much, Christy. Um, So, the Children's Environmental Health Clinic is the only one of its kind in Canada. Um, It's um, specific we focused on um, three pillars, including clinical service, education, and research. We work um, with um, government and uh, at various levels, with universities as well as with the public. Referrals can be to any physician, and because um, we stand alone in Canada, we take referrals from all over um, Canada, so our referral footprint is quite large. Uh, sometimes we're able to see patients in person, and sometimes we work over telehealth with their local physicians in order to help sort out a number of environmental exposures that may be contributing to health problems in children or that are certainly contributing to worry um, in these cases. Uh, our Children's Environmental Health Clinic is um, associated with um, pediatric environmental health specialty units, which are actually mainly based in the United States but have worldwide fingerprints. And we're also a World Health Organization collaborating center in children's environmental health. Great. Thank you. Uh, 
Um, so, Anne, I thought perhaps maybe now, if you don't mind just presenting the case, um, just giving a brief clinical summary of the patient we're going to be discussing, hitting on some highlights, and then um, at any point, Howard, if you have any questions for Anne, feel free to break in. Sure. Thanks. Okay. So, um, this, um, this is a case where the child actually presented after the exposure was over, but with questions about um, a relatively new home. Um, this is uh, the child that um, originally presented at 15 months of age after a term delivery with chronic nasal congestion that developed um, within the first day of life after coming home uh, that gradually worsened until uh, there were episodes of vomiting clear mucus not associated with feeding or other pathology with vomiting, but just with large um, copious actually amounts of mucus production. The child had a brewy or brief unexplained um, event at about five weeks of age and was investigated in hospital with no specific findings. After um, some time, the family discovered that when they were away from their home for extended periods of several days or more, their symptoms uh, resolved. Uh, and this included um, eye, nose, and throat symptoms in all family members, as well as joint pain in the child's older sibling and um, one of the parents. When they returned home, their symptoms worsened. At that point, they had their home assessed, and it was found to have elevated levels of particulate matter and mold by an independent company that the family uh, retained. Um, there were also signs of water damage in some places. The family um, undertook remediation of their home while they lived away, and then um, when they returned home had recurrence of their symptoms. Um, they had a second inspection and remediation and cleaning um, and um, at this point are still unable to return to their home because when they do, they have a return of symptoms. This um, young child at about 18 months had a positive skin test for allergy to um, aspergillus and penicillium molds. Their um, blood test was negative at the time, which suggested um, that the child did not have current exposure but did have um, allergic sensitization. And the child was living out of the home for some weeks at that time and was asymptomatic. Um, the family at one point after the second remediation also had formaldehyde testing done in their home. And it came within Canadian standards, as does the uh, mold count in their home after two rounds of remediation. However, they are still reacting to this relatively new home and are in a difficult position of being in a rental home um, and still paying off their um, new home, but unable to live in it. And that's where we are left with this case of what exposures may have caused the symptoms in the family and in the child seen in clinic in particular. Okay, great. Thanks. And um, before we get too much more into the environmental side of things, just for, I know a lot of pulmonologists are listening to this and thinking, oh, is there a family history of asthma? You know, is there reflux in this child? Is there any history to suggest primary ciliary dyskinesia or any other kinds of things? So I thought I would just ask you that briefly. Sure. Those are all excellent questions. Um, there's a family history of mild um, asthma in childhood in the father, which he did outgrow. 
Um, the father has cat allergy um, and does react to cats. And the mother has some environmental allergies that were positive on skin prick testing. Um, there's no family history of allergy on the mother's side. And there's no history of reflux in this um, child. Um, I did consider an immune workup early in the interaction. However, the child is completely well at this point and without nasal congestion, so I'm less worried about primary ciliary dyskinesia or other immune defects. Great, thanks. Um, and I will say for the listeners, we've all um, read and discussed a much more detailed presentation of this patient, but we thought we'd summarize it for the sake of the podcast. Um, at this point, Howard, I would like to hear from you um, on a few different themes, um, including you know, what we know about formaldehyde as a potential indoor environmental irritant, um, what we know about the role of indoor mold as relates to this case and in general, and anything else you'd like to comment on about indoor um, air quality, indoor particle exposure, things like that. Well, thank you very much, Christy and Anne. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I want to lead off by saying that when we discuss the health effects of formaldehyde exposure, and perhaps more so when we discuss the health effects of indoor mold exposure and uh, particulate pollution in general, we are on a we're using a much weaker evidence base than is often the case in medicine where drugs have to be approved by federal agencies such as the FDA in the U.S. Uh, there are often uh, rigorous clinical, double-blind clinical trials done. Uh, frequently we can have meta-analyses of, of the uh, relevant publications, um, and that's largely not the case here. There is quite a large literature on formaldehyde, which is a, a low molecular weight volatile organic compound that is, that is off-gassed, really, from many building and construction products, some glues, uh, some types of insulation material. Uh, and of course, physicians know it's often used in uh, anatomy labs to preserve uh, our specimens. Um, Formaldehyde, first off the top, we have to mention is that formaldehyde is viewed based on some epidemiology data, occupational epidemiology data, and a lot of animal data to be an, a carcinogen. And it's ranked as a human carcinogen uh, by the World Health Organization. It is also a delayed hypersensitivity dermal sensitizing agent uh, detected through patch tests. Um, its relationship to immediate hypersensitivity and IgE-mediated uh, disease is based on occupational studies and some building-related studies is more in dispute and unclear. There are papers on both sides, uh, and whether it can really cause sensitizer-induced asthma um, is not very clear. Um, and then I'll mention one other thing, which is perhaps the most important, uh, which is I, I discussed carcinogenicity and sensitization, but the thing formaldehyde is best known for, again, as physicians who've been in anatomy labs know, is irritation of the mucous membranes. 
the ocular mucus, the eye mucous membranes, uh, the nose, the oropharynx, and log logically even the the bronchi and the bronchioles. Although we don't really know how this irritation plays in to an interaction with a pre-existing uh, case of asthma or an asthma case that relates to mold exposure, just not well known. Um, a lot of things that have been known to produce formaldehyde exposure have been taken out of commerce now, like some of the spray and foam insulations. And there's been a lot of news coverage of uh, prefabricated wood product flooring uh, with some implication that, that uh, brands that were manufactured in uh, East Asia were more problematic. Oh, I was just going to ask now. you about that. Sorry, before you switch. Um, so is this something where, like, I know we're talking about the United States and Canada here, so it may vary, but are there, like, levels, do you know, in the U.S. that, you know, if it's in a new home, it can't be above this level, for example? Or are, do you know if we have any rules like that, any laws? I'm not aware of any federal regulations. I think the Consumer Product Safety Con Commission may have made uh, some determinations, but I don't know the quantitative numbers. Okay, interesting. All right, sorry, and moving there along. Have perhaps, there have perhaps been regulations or information promulgated about uh, people who had to live in trailers after some of the more distant past hurricanes okay. uh, in Florida, I think after Hurricane Andrew. And some of those trailers emitted uh, substantial concentrations of formaldehyde, but I, I don't know the specific numbers or the regulations that might apply uh, in a legal sense. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, mold is also, mold and fungi, which are often used interchangeably, uh, is also been implicated in this case, and there are a number of things to say about it. I, again, the evidence base is not great. It's pretty clear that people through an IgE mechanism can become sensitized to ambient mold, which occurs in the air uh, as mold and uh, along with pollen and, and grasses and, and other uh, immediate hypersensitivity antigens. Um, what's less clear is how that relates <clears throat> to indoor contamination with mold. In this case, uh, mold was said to be have certain molds were at higher levels indoors than outdoors, and that's a sign that maybe there's a problem in a house. It's not clear to me from the descriptions how much visible water damage and mold damage in this new house uh, was actually detected and was actually removed. Um, visible mold, especially in the case of a symptomatic patient, uh, should certainly be removed. It can't always be cleaned off. Often you have to actually cut out the material on which the mold is growing. The importance of water damage is that mold needs uh, two things to grow. It needs water and it needs a food source, a carbon-based food source. Wallpaper has carbon-based food sources in it. So if, water, if wallpaper or carpeting or other building materials get damp and moist, uh, which is worse in a humid environment, um, they ought to be removed uh, 
certainly if someone is symptomatic and perhaps otherwise. It's not completely clear to me how much actual removal of contaminated or water-damaged areas took place here. The so symptoms, there was a, Sorry. Go ahead. There was a documented area with some leakage where there was visible mold, and that was actually removed, and then the surrounding areas were scrubbed with vinegar as per... Um, there's um, some Alberta recommendations for cleaning up mold damage. There was also, I guess, um, an area that, where the um, insulation seal was incomplete, and that was um, remediated. There were some areas of flexible ducting where there was some water pooling, um, and the parts that could be reached without pulling out the walls were also um, changed out for uh, rigid ductwork. Thank you. So that all sounds pretty reasonable, and it sounds like the, the techniques used are consistent with those recommended by U.S. federal agencies like CDC and EPA. Um, so that's, that's good. Um, I was going to get into the health effects a bit. Uh, various uh, prestigious bodies, the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, uh, the World Health Organization, uh, clearly recognize that exposure to excessive amounts of indoor mold or living in water-damaged buildings is related to upper respiratory allergy and as well as lower respiratory allergy. Whether it's causative or not is of, of actual asthma is, is somewhat debated in those, although there are data that, again, show both ways. Um, some of the other effects that have been attributed to mold to cause more general uh, symptoms or system, systemic conditions uh, characterized by such things as headache, fatigue, uh, which don't apply in this particular case, uh, headache, fatigue, aches and pains, which people here did complain about. Um, the liter th those reviews of the literature uh, do not strongly support a connection there, although there have been epidemiologic studies from Scandinavia, which showed a relationship between living in a water-damaged home and some of those nonspecific symptoms as opposed to the respiratory symptoms. And then finally, there have been the issue with mold of mold toxins, uh, which in some cases of contaminated animal feed have caused uh, blood dyscrasias and immune deficiencies and severe GI distress. To the best of our knowledge, that does, those kinds of systemic and, and even uh, mortal uh, syndromes do not occur, have not been documented to occur in uh, human populations that just uh, inhale uh, excesses of mold. And, and the, the idea that the toxins come from certain uh, more dangerous uh, species of mold is also not well documented. The toxins are there, but the human health effects are not well documented at all. Um, I think that's all I'll, I'll say for now. Great. Thank you very much. Um, and did you want to say anything about indoor particle exposure? Like, Well, indoor all? particle exposure is overlaps with exposure to mold and other indoor allergens such as dust mites and pollens and, and grass 
uh, antigens that can infiltrate the indoor air from the outdoor air. Uh, a lot of the indoor particle material, and by, by particles I mean particles less than two and a half uh, microns in diameter, or PM 2.5, as well as total particle counts, which emphasize uh, uh, ultrafine or nanoparticle range, much smaller uh, but low mass particles. Um, those are felt to at least, to a reasonable approximation, about 50% of those arise from outdoor particles coming indoors uh, through open windows, in completely sealed uh, windows and, and doorways. Um, and those particles, we, we know they're indoors, and we know that they are very similar to the particles that are outdoors, which in epidemiology studies have been very strongly linked to uh, death and disease, mostly in elderly populations, although one study I was involved in found changes in biomarkers uh, inflammatory markers, coagulation markers, respiratory inflammation markers, including FENO, and changes in those in uh, healthy young adults uh, with changes in the air pollution. So, there, there, again, there's opportunity for those particles to cause a lot of morbidity. It's not well established how much morbidity they may cause in terms of symptomatic uh, illnesses like we're discussing in this case. Lastly, I wanted to bring up, there are a number of studies now that have experimented with indoor air particle cleaning devices or instruments uh, that people sometimes choose to deploy in their homes. And it does look like in, in many studies that those will actually reduce particle levels by 50 or so percent indoors independent of what's coming in. So that sounds like a good thing. And in fact, there is a reasonable literature uh, in the, the asthma and allergy literature that those air cleaners, especially when placed in the bedroom, in the sleeping or breathing zone of a child, can improve uh, asthma symptoms, biomarkers, and even in some studies, rates of visits. Uh, this is not a thoroughly nailed down area, but it is worth considering, especially in a child like this, and the extent to which which particles are being filtered out, whether it's mold particles, cat particles, uh, other pet danders, or ambient pollens and other antigens. Um, those air cleaner, uh, an air cleaner like that, again, especially in the child's bedroom, uh, could be considered. As, as, an, as a clinical experiment. Yeah, so if someone was going to purchase one of these, is this like a portable HEPA filter, or does it go by a different name? I know I've seen those at the store. No, you would definitely want a HEPA filter. It's a portable air cleaner with a HEPA filter. That's a good point. Um, you can also, if you have a carbon filter in there as well, it may actually pick up the formaldehyde or, or, or pick... Uh, remove some of the formaldehyde, but that, again, is not thoroughly well studied and, and you'd much rather remove it at the source. Right. Um, I know there's research ongoing here in Baltimore, at least in the COPD population with home air cleaners, possibly some other populations too, um, but I know that's an area of growing research and interest, so 
um, very relevant to bring it up with this patient. Um, Anne, is there anything that you wanted to mention right now before I sort of get into takeaway points or anything you wanted to ask Howard about? Yeah, so the only other question I have really is that um, when you look at uh, recommendations around formaldehyde levels, I can find World Health Organization and um, local recommendations for different provinces. I can also find measurements in homes in the literature here and there. Um, and many of the, the states also have recommended levels for formaldehyde exposure. What I can't find is anything for homes. They're all associated with um, workplace formaldehyde levels. Is that typical or is there a good place for someone to look for levels for a home or should people even be investigating in that direction in symptomatic patients? Well, in the U.S., the Federal Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, which is known as ATSDR, it's part of the CDC, they actually provide what are called minimum risk levels for formaldehyde, uh, which are, in this case, the, the risk levels are based on respiratory findings in humans and in animals. And they come up with a level of 0 0.04 parts per million or 40 parts per billion of formaldehyde for an acute exposure. For chronic, it's quite a bit less. It's 0 0.008 uh, parts per million. So those numbers are out there um, based on the different exposure scenarios. Um, they're not hard and fast numbers. They're derived uh, essentially from looking at dose response data if it's available in humans or in animals and uh, adding on various kinds of safety factors to account for extrapolation. So those levels are there. Um, and whether they, how they correspond to various state or local or provincial levels, I'm not sure. Okay, great. And I guess that brings me to the other half of my question, which is that... Um, when you look, some people have undertaken measurements in different homes, um, and I think I was looking at a Canadian study specifically, uh, formaldehyde levels are certainly higher in homes where there was smoking, but um, in some of the other homes, um, the, the levels were sitting closer to the 40 parts per billion than the eight parts per billion, just in an average house where people went in and measured. So I'm not I'm not sure if it's reasonable to try to achieve that the eight number. Well, at those kind of levels, at a level of of eight, as you say, we wouldn't really. That's probably well below the odor threshold for formaldehyde. It's probably below the irritation threshold. Um, meaning where the levels at which people experience irritation. So although it is recognized as a carcinogen, um, I wouldn't expect that we have to try, that the evidence supports trying to achieve uh, such low levels unless, again, something's driving it. You know, in this case, we have this sick child and various other kinds of illnesses in the family, and they're telling us that they get better when they leave the house. Um, if that's really credible, um, 
you know, sometimes although people leaving a home or selling it is a difficult thing to do, very difficult, uh, it may be worth, especially in the case where there have been a number of positive experiments in this family where they've left and felt better, it may be worth considering uh, as a, from a clinical point of view, it's not thoroughly evidence-based, but as a clinical point of view, uh, to encourage them to take that, that bigger step or at least discuss it. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And that's a nice segue, actually, into um, I just wanted to, as we wrap up, to just make a couple points or ask a couple questions to you guys. So the first one was, you know, when I heard this case, I thought, well, this is very interesting, and I don't have, as a pediatric pulmonologist, a ton of ex experience with this um, sort of line of investigation when we, meet when we meet patients. I've definitely had parents ask me, particularly about mold, they saw something on the news, or they have a friend who heard this, and they got this done, and, you know, um, I'm a little bit familiar with some of the literature related to mold, and um, it can be tricky to, you know, it's hard to say ever if these things are relevant to your patient, but outside of an environmental clinic, um, do you guys have any advice for how those of us in practice can either learn more about this, or which websites we should be going to if we have specific questions that are good resources for environmental health? Sure. Um, go ahead, Howard. No, you go ahead. Um, so one of the things that I've discovered um, becoming involved with the Children's Environmental Health Clinic is the U.S. network of pediatric environmental health specialty units. Um, the, they really um, originated in the United States, and there are multiple um, units available, and they will... Um, be able to both, they provide information for physicians and patients as well as links to other websites such as World Health Organization and they can be contacted. So each, um, although they, there isn't a unit in every state, um, different regions are covered and so healthcare providers can contact these units with their questions. If you're outside the United States, there are other um, units associated worldwide including ours in Canada and a unit in Mexico as well. Um, and that is how we got uh, some of our referrals are further than local for sure. Um, World Health Organization also has some excellent resources. And Howard? Yeah, I was going to say there is a lot written about mold and formaldehyde, and there's a lot of misinformation out there, some of which appears in minimally peer-reviewed literature and some of which appears on various websites and in the popular press. I encourage clinicians to be circumspect about such recommendations. Um, good sources of reviewed information include the ATSDR, which I discussed earlier, the CDC websites themselves, um, publications of the National Research Council or Institute of Medicine or in the National Academy Press, those are all sort of the same thing. Um, they may be a little less consistent, or I'm sorry, a little less aggressive than other recommendations, but they're likely to help you find reasoned uh, balances. The American Academy of Allergy and Immunology, uh, which is one of the paper uh, references cited as an addendum to this case, 
has a position statement on mold allergy, um, it's uh, pretty conservative in terms of thinking through what might and what might not be a problem for a given patient. Uh, but that's the nature of this field. It's become, in the U.S., it can be highly politicized and even litigated. That's all. Right. And um, one thing I was thinking about is, you know, to people out in the community who want to get this investigation done for their family, it sounds like in many cases their only choice might be to contact a company that, you know, make, stands to make a lot of money from remediation, um, and so that does seem like a little bit of a potential conflict of interest and maybe something to just mention to our families um, to, be, to be aware of. That is absolutely correct. Um, it's, it would be a strong recommendation if, you're, if you have a problem like this, even if you don't want to uh, have your child seen at a pediatric environmental health specialty unit to perhaps seek a recommendation for who's a, a reliable and responsible measurement person or a remediation contractor. And you're right, ideally they should be separated. Uh, they, they should be different companies, but that gets into more money. So it's a problem. Right. Okay, great. This was very interesting. Do you guys have any other things you wanted to add before we're finished? No, thank you. I think that covered everything. And Howard, I thank you very much for answering many of the questions that came up through this case. Well, thank, thank you, guys. You both. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> very interesting. I really learned a lot just now from our discussion, and I feel like I need to, to read more. I think I'm going to see if there's a way to post some links to some of the websites we've mentioned that are good resources for clinicians um, as, you know, this podcast is posted. So thank you both again very much.